1: This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Just when many of us thought it was safe to go back outside, the Delta variant of COVID-19 put our hot vac summer on ice. Now, there are worries that a new wave of infections could claim thousands more lives, especially amongst Black Americans.
2: First and foremost, we must approach this with an undying love for Black people. we got to stop thinking about the Black community from the concept of its deficits. We have strengths, every one of us. More on how the Black community
1: can combat the COVID crisis coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. This is a word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. The COVID crisis ripped through the black community with African-Americans accounting for almost a quarter of the 600,000 deaths that we've had so far. And as the Delta variant is bringing back crowded hospital wards and mask mandates, healthcare leaders are struggling to maximize vaccine efforts and minimize the pain for black America. Dr. Reed Tuckson is one of those on the front lines of the fight. He's a veteran physician, public health advocate, and co-founder of the Black Coalition Against COVID. And Dr. Reed Tuckson joins us now. Welcome to A Word. Pleasure to be with you. Dr. Tuckson, what does the Black Coalition Against COVID do, and what inspired you to launch it?
2: Well, thanks for asking. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be the Commissioner of Public Health for Washington, D.C. during the height of the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. I learned firsthand how important it is to have community based grassroots mobilization to fight major public health challenges as a partner with government efforts. And so when we saw uh, Easter Sunday, uh, about a year in three months ago or so, uh, the, what the uh, pandemic looked like it was going to mean to the Black community, I was able to reach out to the community influences all across the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., and grab together the faith community leaders and musicians, poets, artists, uh, organized labor, uh, the academic community, the medical community, just bringing together community-based organizations and engage those leaders in a mobilization to, uh, to fight this pandemic. As we evolve, we learned that we needed a lot more medical firepower. And we were very fortunate then to pull together and organize the CEOs and the leaders of the four black medical schools, Howard, Meharry, Morehouse and Charles Drew, along with the National Medical Association, the National Black Nurses Association, taking all of this firepower of America's leading uh, black academic physicians and medical societies and combine them with the National Urban League and the largest digital publisher for health information for the black community, blackdoctor.org. And so we put all of that together, and now we have done probably 20 uh, national town halls for the black community uh, in a variety of different topics and variety of different segments and probably have reached about 2 million people just in those town halls alone. So we've had a lot of success and we've enjoyed a great deal of support across the breadth and depth of the black community along with our leading black health professionals.
1: After after you know obviously putting together these efforts and and trying to get the information out there and trying to keep people vaccinated black folks still lag behind white people when it comes to vaccination. Here we are maybe seven to eight months into vaccinations being available. Do you think that the black community is behind in vaccinations because of lack of access to vaccinations or a desire to not be vaccinated? Which do you think it is based on your work?
2: Uh, Early on, uh, we knew that it was going to be difficult uh, to gain acceptance for the vaccine because of the historical uh, seeds of distrust that have been so deeply planted uh, in the black community. We were fortunate to see though, that through the combined efforts of many different people and many different influencers, uh, that we were able to vaccinate an extraordinarily large number of people, uh, particularly our seniors um, uh, uh, were were really, really uh, very responsive to being vaccinated. The access issues early on For convenience in our communities and the ability to uh, at that in the early stages to register were also complicated by our relative uh, 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 disenfranchisement from internet sites and being facile with being able to play the the registration online uh, game. That no longer is an issue. Now what we're left with is a harder to reach group of people who for a variety of reasons are acting upon Uh, Not only uh, distrust of America's uh, elites, America's uh, infrastructures, because of the politicization of the pandemic and the vaccine in particular by former President Trump, who has hurt us in ways that are just almost incalculable. Um, We also are being targeted very deliberately by people pushing misinformation. And then finally, we are being very much um, uh, victimized by an underlying anger. We're just angry. And the social media uh, anger is really causing us challenges uh, at being able to try to get people to accept uh, 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 these sort of intelligent and science-based guidance. When you talked about issues of of access, you say
1: access isn't really an issue now. I can relate my personal experience of when I tried to get vaccinated. It was in a mostly black. It was at a, a healthcare center in a mostly black and Latino neighborhood. And there were no black and Latino people in line, except for me and a friend of mine. I mean, it was nothing. I mean, it looked like, it looked like Lollapalooza. It was nothing but white people who had obviously found out this is a place they could go. And they had all lined up with their beats pills and everything else like that. And so my, my question for you about that is I could imagine that to the community surrounding that healthcare center, when they see all these white folks, they're like, I don't even know if I want to be a part of this. So, Do you think that could have had an effect? The fact that that white Americans got so much faster access to the vaccine, um, do you think that could have led to some of the apprehension or concern that black people had about it in addition to them taking up spots that were initially meant for us?
2: I think what it does is and what it did was to fuel the sense, again, of anger, of distrust, the sense of we are being uh, somehow victimized uh, by, by an oppressive society that has uh, more elites having privilege. Clearly, we were across the country hearing reports about how upset people were that, uh, that the registration process Uh, seem to disadvantage us as evidenced by how did all of these white people suddenly wind up in our community when they have never been here before. Uh, It's a miracle. The odd thing about it, though, is is our reaction to it. Uh, Instead of our reaction being, why do these people are willing to do something that they have never done before to take this kind of risk to get access to a scarce vaccine? to save their lives, yet we're still standing back going, I'm not so sure whether I want uh, to do this. So instead of it com- stoking our competitive fires, in many cases, somehow it, it, it drove us away. It's not much different, Jason, than our response to the Tuskegee syphilis study, which is, when you think of it, very uh, counterintuitive. Uh, a study where black men uh, were denied access to a drug that would have saved them. We now, in our legitimate anger about the outrageousness of that study, decide in many of our cases across this country, um, many, many, many people of color are saying, well, because of Tuskegee, I'm going to now deny myself access to the very vaccine that could save my life. These issues, Jason, as you well know, are so complicated. They're so intertwined with subtleties and nuances that uh, it is often amazing that people will act not in their own best self-interest simply because they are so angry. We're going to take a short
1: break. When we come back, we'll talk more about COVID's impact on the Black community. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. Did you know you could be listening to this show ad-free? All it takes is a Slate Plus membership. It's just $1 for the first month and it helps support our show. Plus, it lets you hear all Slate podcasts without ads, and read unlimited articles on the Slate site without ever hitting a paywall. So sign up now for Slate Plus at Slate.com slash a word plus. That's Slate.com slash a word plus.
0: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear,
1: everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the COVID crisis in the black community with Dr. Reed Tuxen of the Black Coalition Against COVID. Dr. Tuckson, you mentioned something at the beginning, which I thought was fascinating. I was a kid at the time. I've seen the documentaries. You led public health efforts in Washington, D.C. during the AIDS epidemic in the 80s. First off, just from a fear and ignorance standpoint, what was that like? I mean, you know, today, COVID, you can have people who may be COVID skeptics, etc., etc. But during the AIDS crisis in the 80s, you had people saying, well, this is just for gay people. Or, this is just for immoral people. What was it like? What were some of the challenges that you faced then?
2: You know, what's really kind of very sad uh, is that uh, it is almost exactly like it is today. Uh, Here you have a disease that is spread in ways that people did not understand. Uh, Therefore, there was a lot of of mistrust about what it means to me and others. Uh, The number one rate-limiting step to try to talk to a black community uh, that I recall so well on every radio show that I did It was always Tuskegee, Tuskegee, Tuskegee. This is a plot by the white man to kill black people. It was made in a lab uh, at the CIA. I mean, doesn't this all sound very familiar? It does. Uh, It's it's very frightening. And then, of course, it was us against them, me against you. I'm not going to do what I need to do to protect my uh, sexual partner because it's all a plot. And so often, uh, uh, Jason, I'd be on a, a, a phone call like this with you. And, um, and, and and a person would call in and say, uh, well, this is a plot against uh, black people developed by the white man in the CIA. And then I would ask, brother, what has that got to do with you wearing a condom tonight with your lady? And all of a sudden it was like, well, I don't have to wear a condom because I can't get it and she can't get it because it's not even a real disease. So th- these it, it is almost exactly. But this is the outrageous part. And I think it's something we're going to have to deal with. That was 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. If Tuskegee was the rate-limiting step to try to talk to black folks about the importance of protecting not only themselves, but their their partners and their community uh, from that disease, we have done nothing in 40 years to take Tuskegee off the table. How could that be the rate-limiting step yet again? Shame on the American research enterprise, shame on the American clinical care enterprise and shame on the American public policy enterprise that together our healthcare industry, of which I am a member, have done nothing in 40 years to give black people the sense that the guidance and advice is being given to them out of uh, out of love, out of respect, out of concern for their health, as opposed to uh, the distrust that we see rampant today.
1: When you have these interactions today, um, whether it's a a radio show in D.C. or or online or whatever, what's the most common explanation that people have for why they haven't taken the vaccine? Here we are eight, nine months in because a lot of people have. But if you're eight, nine months in, you have a reason why you haven't.
2: It ultimately comes down to over and over again, anger, distrust, uh, frustration and the vaccine or the mask wearing or any other guidance become proxies for a larger set of social phenomena. And until we sort of begin to understand that, um, it, it, it really makes us uh, having to battle these individual concerns. It's OK to have questions. And that's one thing that we say over and over again, Jason, is it's OK to have questions, but please don't get your answers from Pookie because pookie on the internet doesn't know what they are talking about but it's okay to have questions but but if you're not prepared to listen to the answers if you have no trust in what people who are scientific experts are saying then the the conversation becomes very difficult because you're shadow boxing uh, around what the real concern is and the real concern is i do not trust Anything that anybody is telling me, and I simply believe that this is a plot to hurt me, and therefore I am not going to, uh, to to cooperate. That's what we're hearing over and over again, regardless of what the question is.
1: We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more on COVID prevention measures in the Black community. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking with Dr. Reed Tuxen of the Black Coalition Against COVID. As you mentioned, from the start, the fight against COVID has been politicized and about half a million Americans died in the Trump administration's watch. What are some policy changes from the White House that you suggest they should be implementing now to combat COVID? What's the policy solution Or the policy message that we should be getting now that we're not getting from the White House?
2: You know, this is a a very intriguing question, uh, Jason, because I'm not so sure uh, that there are a lot of policy issues. Uh, I think that what the federal government can do, number one, is... It has to continue to push the values that every human life in America is respected. And that when black people take to the streets in the, by the tens of thousands, screaming out as a primal scream, my life matters, my dignity matters, unless those issues are dealt with, then everything after that becomes a challenge. But that is the most important thing, is to get us to a place where black lives matter to this government and to this country. Number two, what they have to be able to do, and I think they have done a good job uh, ultimately of making sure that there is access to vaccines in our communities together. One of the things that they made a decision that I have to commend them for and something that I'm working uh, in, in with the Black Coalition Against COVID much in partnership is using our community-based infrastructures more. Not only our our church and faith and civic leaders, but also our barbershops and beauty salons. We are involved in a major initiative with them now, where we are training barbershops owners and and salon uh, beauticians uh, to have the facts about this disease because we know how much time we spend at the shop. I think one of the things they need to do a better job of from a policy point of view is to give more money and resources to black organizations to do the marketing and not have us filter through uh, white organizations. Last year uh, in 2020, when
1: things were at some levels at their worst, I wrote a piece for the Griot and I did some back of the envelope calculations and pointed out that black people were dying of COVID at the same rate that we were dying on the middle passage being brought from from the continent to the United States. And that I remember getting a lot of feedback and people were like, oh, my God, like when they saw those numbers, when you saw the percentages roughly the same. Here we are almost a year later from when I wrote that piece, and what I'm hearing from some people is, well, I had COVID and I survived, so why do I need the vaccine? And then I hear some people say, well, look, if I can still catch COVID, even after I have to get vaccinated, what's the point of getting vaccinated? What would you advise both me and those of us out there in the world who are hearing that from people? How do we talk to the people who've already been sick, who don't want to get vaccinated, How do we talk to the people who have become nihilist now and who are saying, well, I don't see any point in getting it if I could still suffer through a breakthrough?
2: First and foremost, we must approach this with an undying love for black people. Do you understand? An undying love for black people and through that undying love for black people, a love for all people. That's what's important so that the middle passage uh, example that you give We have been struggling for survival in America since the very first days, and it has been a communal struggle. It has been a struggle where each of us recognizes that we are part of a whole and that we have an obligation to each other to pull each other through, to get us where we need to go. The celebration of the Black family against all odds, but the celebration of the Black community in support of the Black family, in support of Black individuals, our churches, our infrastructure, our social organizations. All of them have been dedicated to issues larger than ourselves. And so when we have people who say, I have a right not to wear a mask. I have a right not to take a vaccine that may save us. I have a right to go into the club at night and and party with all of my friends and so forth. I don't care what happens to you because I am all that matters. That is antithetical, Jason, to our entire history as a people in this country. And so I think that we all have to start to appeal to each other that says, look, when did it ever get to the place where I was more important and we. And I think this moral and ethical obligation that is grounded not only in morality and ethics, but also in history is something we have to talk to people about. So not only is the science there that says, Uh, that we realize now that 99.9% of all the people that are in hospitals today uh, for COVID infection are unvaccinated, which ought to be all that anybody needs to know. (laughs) I mean, you know, for those who are saying that they are fearful of getting a, a vaccine when tens of millions of people in the United States and around the world have been getting it without untoward consequences, what are you waiting for? But if you don't do it for yourself, Why not do it for your kids? Why don't we have our children be able to get back into school? These are the issues that are larger than ourselves. So put it in the context of the uh, middle passage. I like that. And I think we have to continue to reinforce our sense that me is not as important as we.
1: Leave us with some good news. What is, as as. As some of us are thinking of, of heading back to school as we head into the fall, as we hear about the Delta variant and some people have concerns, what is something optimistic that we can hang our hats on about this battle against COVID in the black community heading into the, the second half of 2021?
2: I'll give you a quick one. I had a chance to uh, the other day uh, meet uh, some of the descendants of the Tuskegee syphilis uh, study experiment uh, and uh, I met the families. I was so impressed that we were able to get a, a camera crew and a film crew uh, to film them in a series of short documentaries. And I'll tell you what they all said to a person. We are all vaccinated and we do not want or do not enjoy, in fact, we're quite upset when people use the misery and pain of our ancestors, of our fathers and our grandfathers and our great grandfathers, each of those cases, those different uh, generations were represented in our conversation. We resent when people use that as a way to harm themselves. So I find myself very optimistic that there are people who have come through the struggle. I met some of the people who were, uh, some of the men who were part of that study. And and it was a big celebration uh, in in honor of them years ago. And I met them and they handed the microphone to one of them. And this is what he said. We forgive. Wow. (laughs) That is who we are as people. We are people who can forgive and their descendants can say to the black community, we're begging you, do the right thing. We all are. I have such optimism because the dignity and the gravitas of these family members saying to people, we can turn a corner. We don't have to be stuck in the amber of our traditional fights with white America. This is beyond that. Let's move forward. And I think they give me reason for optimism. So I'm pretty jazzed up and I'm ready to keep the fight going.
1: Dr. Reed Tuckson is a veteran public health expert and the founder of the Black Coalition Against COVID. Thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you for the great questions in the conversation, Jason. And that's a word for this week. The
1: show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayanna Angel and Jasmine Ellis. Asha Salusha is the managing producer of podcasts at Slate. Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a Word.